and welcome to Cancri, your home of Canada's queer media. My name is Luke Smith. And I'm Sebastian. And uh, it's a chock-a-block episode this week. Uh, we have the incredible Callie Heath, the mm-hmm. uh, author behind the, I think it was The Radicals, mm-hmm. um, is the name of the name of the book, The Reckless Kind, not The Radicals, close enough though. The author behind The Reckless Kind, a queer historical young adult novel. And we are also joined by a little later by uh, Tammy Dobson, a yeah. friend of ours, former chair of Capital Pride in Ottawa, mm-hmm. and uh, my real estate agent. So mm-hmm. we uh, we have a great uh, discussion coming up later about some of the barriers and some of the things that LGBT folks are looking out for when buying a home. Now, with all that being said, I want to start off with some great news here, and that is that the ban on conversion therapy received royal assent. Oh, well, I mean, when it's unanimous in the lower house, it's pretty unlikely to get barriers in the upper house, unless it's really, 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 really badly phrased. Well, it also got unanimous support in the Senate. So it was in both houses. It flew through. It was one of the fastest pieces of legislation it's just excellent news. So yeah, mm-hmm. in about 30 days, so starting in sort of mid to late January, this will very much be banned. Well, that's pretty good news. I also uh, saw some good news from the Assembly of First Nations. Oh, okay. I don't know about this. What, what, what the happened? Assembly of First Nations obviously are a, uh, a grouping uh, representing various of the First Nations, Indigenous folks across Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they have voted to adopt a resolution to create a two-spirit council. They're planning on establishing a 2S LGBTQ council as a recognized principal organ of the organization mm-hmm. and essentially provide their organization with insight and uh, support in the same way as their elders group, uh, the women's uh, council, their youth council. So mm-hmm. this is very uh, interesting and very good news about some innovative work coming out of the Assembly of First Nations. So mm-hmm. really taking on board the perspectives of indigenous um, LGBTQ2S uh, individuals within the Assembly of First Nations. Yeah. So very exciting news. Did you have any uh, exciting news to pick up on? Um, nothing that comes to mind, but bear in mind, we had such a fun time recording with Tammy yesterday. Yes. That I'm still hungover. That, so. is, that is fair. <laughs> we recorded our big gay quiz of the year in advance. People yep. have to wait a couple of weeks before they get to hear it. Um, I suppose the last ep- last uh, song I have, uh, sorry, the last story I have mm-hmm. is a the Amsterdam rainbow dress, okay. which was uh, at the World Pride event in the Netherlands when they marched all of the flags of countries that were um, violently oppressing or had laws criminalizing uh, LGBT folks. Yeah. Someone then took those flags from that parade and sewed it into a massive ball gown. Okay. A truly monumental sized ball gown. And uh, as these countries repeal or remove those laws, those flags are swapped out with rainbow flags. So it is a very powerful dress. 
Um, it was on tour across Canada. I think it was at the uh, Canadian Museum of Civilization. I believe it's going hmm. to the National Art Gallery. Um, and then I think it's heading to Toronto and making its way across the country. The Dutch embassy is uh, helping to move it around. Mm-hmm. So if you get a chance, keep an eye out for the Amsterdam rainbow dress. But they're organizing it. It's not like, you know, the local diplomats are showing up with like a push cart. Yeah. Yeah. A... yeah. I don't think the ambassador <laughs> is is himself like folding. I, mean, I think it's a he folding the, uh, you know, the flags into a box and carrying it uh-huh. uh, in there. We are jumping to our first track. After that, we have the interview with uh, the incredible novelist, uh, Connie Heath. But for now, this is uh, Dauphin et le Princesse by Larche, and uh, we'll be back just after this. Sebastian. And we are very excited to have the incredible author behind The Reckless Kind, uh, Carly Heath. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited 
to talk to you guys. Now, this is exciting. We've, we've had a, a box have been on the brain a little bit for the, the past couple of weeks and the past month. Um, we have an interview coming up next week. The interviews on the shows are massively out of order, so it's I'm a bit scrambled. But we have yeah. a, an interview coming up next week where I happen to reference like a, a book from my five-year-old nephew around the color monster. So, you know, the importance of, of reading is is uh, fundamental, as the drag queens say. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's it's Definitely. great. So can you tell us a little bit about your book before we dive into some of the topics uh, in and around that? Yes. Yes, it's uh, The Reckless Kind is a young adult novel set in 1904 Scandinavia, and it's about three queer teens who defy the expectations of their rural Scandinavian village in every way possible. They leave their homes, uh, they head out to live on their own, and they ultimately have to train a wild filly to win or to compete in the annual winter horse race in order to make up enough money so that they can sustain their way of life. And it's a, it's about found family and the main uh, centered group is a queer platonic triad, which is a lot of fun. There is uh, a romance between uh, two boys. There is asexual representation and there's a lot of disability representation as well. And it's very empowering. It's all about defiance and it's all about, you know, follow the importance of your heart, you know, follow what feels right. Um, sometimes your society and your parents don't necessarily have your best interest in mind. And so it's important to connect with those, like your friends and the people who you connect with uh, to live authentically. I think it's really interesting that idea of the importance of chosen family. And I think chosen family is such a major role for queer folks you know I've been very lucky and my, my family's fantastic but for many queer folks you know they, they aren't the kind of refuge that you need and chosen family uh, is it's a so, major so theme important. in uh, LGBT fiction in general books and shows and yes everything it, it shows up a lot yeah for sure yeah yeah, yeah, definitely. Just like, you know, whenever I, and I find too, as someone who kind of had a difficult childhood, I kind of connect also with other people who had kind of difficult childhoods. And, uh, and also I, you know, you start to feel that instant connection with people also who are queer and you, you might even not like have a straight up conversation like, Oh, are you queer? Are you queer? But you just like suddenly feel drawn to a certain person and then you find out later down the line oh i know why i Mm. connect with you a lot Mm. we're both queer and that's that's what's happening there there. occasions (laughs) where i've been on like a school trip or uh, gone to a conference and you're like i'm we vibe why are we vibing and then it turns out you're both like dick and it's like that is why but it's not it's not necessarily that was very crass of me but it's more about <laughs> kind of cultural understanding the nuances it's like you know finding someone who's in the same hockey team yeah and it's it's not even a like romantic attraction it's like a uh yeah it's like uh i have a feeling we're gonna be really good friends it's, and it's, it is and, weird uh and it can be neutral as well i have a a moderately rich history of making very good friends with lesbians who used to be snipers or tank drivers in the military yeah, for some reason lesbians. yeah, yeah. Yep. i yep. just get along with them really well yep. no reason 
So many of that's, them that it's now a category of your friendship groups. Like yes. There is, uh, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. So like military lesbians, that's yeah, your yeah, demographic. Yeah. That's oh, your friendship just so demographic. Forward. You ask them a question, they give you an answer. Job done. Gotta love it. <laughs> awesome. But yeah, yeah, that's, a, but that's a theme like in the book strongly. Asta feels like this profound mm-hmm. connection to Gunnar, who is her best friend and she loves him and he, and he loves her, but they know they're never going to get married, but they love each other and they connect with each other and they have that soul like mm-hmm. connection. And, uh, and so that's kind of what I really wanted to explore was you can have these really strong connections with people and it's not necessarily a romantic or sexual connection. Connection. Uh, it's the connection that sometimes queer people just have with each other and is really deep and meaningful and profound. Um, but it's not necessarily something that is the heteropatriarchy's idea of like, if you are a man and a woman, you get married and have babies. This I mean, is your function I think in life. It's really interesting because I believe that as a community and as a culture now, we're starting to understand the sort of nuances of love and, and how it's portrayed in particular men, men have always been sort of stuck to there is your wife and then maybe your children who shall be, you know, seen and not heard and, and how men express emotion and how men express love and longing has been very stilted over the past few generations. Um, mm-hmm. It seems to me like your book is exploring love from a myriad of of perspectives you know how much of a role does that play in the narrative yeah that's a major theme in the book the love that you have for your friends love that you have for well there's romantic love in the book and then the love that you have for like animals um like like caring for animals and kindness towards animals is a really really big theme and hey like shout out to gen z like teenagers and like the demographic of what this book is for because i feel like i don't know you guys have any gen z friends they are the most amazing people who like do so much work on social media to dismantle uh, the heteropatriarchy, you know, gender binary ideals of like, this is what society Mm -hmm. should be. Um, And then, you know, Gen Z is out there like saying, no, there's actually all of these different types of attraction and love and relationships and gender identities. And uh, they're doing some really amazing work like putting that out there and kind of teaching all of us. And I just learned so much from that generation and we owe them so much. And, and so I hope this is something that will also speak to that generation. I think I heard before that, you know, millennials are the generation of, we have run out of blanks. Like we have no more blanks to give. Obviously I can't say the word on, on air. Um, whereas Gen Z yes. doesn't even entertain the question. <laughs> it was, they're starting from a deficit yeah. of, of, of um care to give in the world yes. almost um and you know we see that echo for example in in employment you know if someone's having if somebody has a bad manager that won't improve they will just get a new job walk away <laughs> two weeks notice what's two Walking weeks notice? Away. If, if you're a crappy manager then i won't be here tomorrow and it's it's yeah. that idea of just like you know action it's a very action oriented uh, generation very exciting stuff um 
And hey, if you have to walk away from your family, which is also, which is a theme in the book, which is kind of not socially acceptable amongst the older generations, but uh, staying with a toxic family and appealing to a toxic family, mm-hmm. not good for your mental health. And this, so this book's all about like leaving that toxic family. Uh, but yeah, the Gen Z's, they, you know, they have established like, hey, if Thanksgiving is not a fun time, they're going to mm-hmm. have a Friendsgiving and uh, they are not going to tolerate their family making them feel I bad. I wanted to touch on, I mean, I thought it was interesting that you sort of said it in Scandinavia and it was the idea of going out into the wilderness. Um, I don't know, maybe Sebastian could back me up on this, but way back when in, in school, we were talking about the sort of foundational idea of the American dream and what a Canadian equivalent of that was. Mm-hmm. And I believe it was Margaret Atwood, a very famous Canadian author, who kind of pinned the idea of mm-hmm. the frontier uh, um, ideology. So it's not about creating something unique to mm-hmm. you and ha- reaching your dream and goal, but rather pushing and endeavoring and, and building a new thing for the good of you know everybody. And that's sort of, exp- not expansionist, that isn't quite the word I'm looking for, but that's a frontier mentality. Am mm-hmm. I on the right track, you said? Because I'm what? vaguely remembering this Canadian equivalent of the American dream. Well, it- as long as it doesn't involve like pushing indigenous people off their land, which is sadly what both Americans and the entrepreneurial spirit of well, yeah, it's more about a common theme yeah. of Canadian stuff. The the Canadian dream, if you if you look at a lot of Canadians, their 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 dream is to be left alone. Like, the number <laughs> of people who come to Canada because like um, oh, when I lived in Toronto, I had a whole bunch of friends who were from India, and they. I, I again, I a weird convergence. I had an entire friend group where all of them had one Muslim parent and one Hindu parent, and they moved to Canada because they were tired of the fighting, and they just came here because they just wanted to be left alone to live their lives in peace. And that seems to be like the Canadian dream is: you come here, and then people stop bothering you. That's kind of it's kind <laughs> of the thing that that that's the dream. But the yeah. the frontier is very much a theme of um, entrepreneurship and and you know finding something to do you know the the local you know asbestos plant shuts down because you live in the quebec countryside what do you do you you buy a mill and then you you make you become a lumber boutique which is a real thing you have places where like five people make enough lumber for a a community so like things like that like you know and well, well, it's really interesting because gen z like is also connecting i think with that but they don't want to take land from indigenous people because they know that's bad. They know colonization is bad, but they kind of tap into that energy with like, have you seen oh, the yes. cottage core aesthetic, like rising to power, <laughs> rising to power, <laughs> rising in prominence and like target. Well, we have a store called target here in, in the States, uh, but they have mm. all the prairie dresses and that aesthetic on, on Instagram. So there's like this tapping into the frontier ideology, uh, but we hopefully without the colonization I, aspect I to it. I think the, the, the modern equivalent is like it. van life. That's the, the vibe that I'm getting. Uh-huh. From mm-hmm. a, buy your bootstraps, making, yeah. making your own way in the world. And that's what your book reminds me of, is these younger folks who yes. are just like making it work. And living their life and just, you know, <laughs> making a goal and reaching it. Is that yeah. was part, part of the inspiration? Yeah. Yes, exactly. That's huge. Yeah, hugely a part of it. Hugely part of the kind of idea is, uh, you know, 
I like this and I'm going to do this. And yes, society is telling me to do X, Y, Z over here and putting all this guilt and this obligation to, you know, do uh, appease my family, please my family, do what my family wants. But then uh, deprogramming yourself from that and being like, you know what, um, that doesn't work for me. This does work for me. But the whole process of then of finding out what works for you, what doesn't work for you is a real deprogramming process. You ha- you have a lot of guilt that's placed on you by society. And then you have to figure out what is guilt that is actual guilt that is your, that that's something that's authentic. And what's the guilt that's artificially placed on you by, by society because you're not conforming to what they want. And so that's also a theme in the book that's, that's explored and dismantled and it's fun. So how do you feel uh, writing for a young adult off? Uh, audience is different from writing uh for like you know a younger 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 audience or an adult audience like how how is it different for you well I love it I love addressing that like cusp between childhood and adulthood and what my my characters are experiencing is like they're doing adult things for the first time and it's really fun because then they comment on oh, I'm doing this adult thing for the first time. I'm cooking a meal for myself for the first time. I'm, uh, you know, planning my day all by myself without having anyone, you know, tell me what to do for the first time. I'm going into town to buy things on my own for the first time. And I think that's really big and it's really fun. Um, and I think young adult audiences are very sophisticated. So you don't necessarily have to dumb things down as, you know, there is, I think adults have this idea, oh, I have to write simpler. Oh, I have to uh, dumb thing, make concepts simpler for young adults. They are very savvy and they're very uh, in tune to human psychology, especially. So you don't need to dumb things down for them. Uh, but comment on the things that are definitely issues that they're probably going through, which are those first time adult things and how interesting they are when you comment, when you, when you experience them as a character and then you comment. I thought it was really interesting that uh, one of the other themes in your book is around um, disability and sort of navigating that within the friend group. How did you land on that (laughs) as being part of the story that you wanted to tell? Yeah, it's actually part of my own experience writing the book. I am someone who has multiple disabilities. I'm hard of hearing. I have spinal injury, post-concussion syndrome, and a weird little hand. And I, uh, I, I was going through a period in my life where I kept on getting injured over and over again because I'm also a horse trainer. And so that spurred the idea for the book. And the sen- and one character is going through this thing where he feels he's cursed with perpetual bad luck because bad things seem to be happening to him over and over and over again. Um, And so I wanted to also explore that people in the real world, at least definitely in my friend group, every single person I know is disabled in some way. Like I do not know someone who is fully abled, but in media and in books and film, TV, ableness is like the norm and if there's any sort of disability it's it's like it's like oh wow they actually have a disabled person that's rare um and it's usually just one disability that person has so i wanted to explore 
in real life, people have multiple disabilities. Uh, the main character in my book, Asta, is hard of hearing. She has facial differences. Uh, Erland has stomach ulcers and anxiety. Gunnar has an arm amputation and a spinal injury. And he has a brother that has post-concussion syndrome. Um, and this is part of life. And it's not a story where they overcome their disabilities um, or anything like that. It's about uh, they're all friends and they care about each other and because they care about each other, they all are conscious of the ways that they can make the other person's life easier um, navigating their disability. So that's kind of something I that want actually to came up with. today. Uh, I, I am a, a frequent uh, uh, reader and contributor on Reddit. And earlier on, somebody was complaining, why are so many gay men bottoms? And then this whole thread started of like, hey, buddy, IBS is really common. Uh, or no, why, why are there so many people who say they want a bottom, but refuse to, and it was oh, IBS and Crohn's disease are incredibly common. You should probably be a little bit more aware of what can happen. And, you know, the, there's a lot of issues out there and yeah. it, it kind of spiraled into an interesting direction of like the intersection of sexuality and, and yeah. disability. I don't know if yes. Crohn's, well, Crohn's disease is a disability. I don't know if uh, some types of IBS is really just you, you adjust your lifestyle and it goes away. But it is interesting, the idea mm-hmm. that like, if you want a good sexual health, you need to completely and totally overhaul your lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And that's something that a lot of people just doesn't occur to them. And uh, yeah, and so I think it's also really important for teens to see positive sex mm. in bo- books. And the book is very sex positive. There are, there are multiple sex scenes and the uh, it, and disability is something that's addressed in the sex scenes in the partner uh, working to make everything as comfortable as possible for uh for their partner who has, and also, you know, both partners actually being aware of what the other person's I, uh, disabilities I are and needs are. Spoilers, uh, even though it's uh, grammatically a bit of a somersault, I appreciate the lack of spoilers. So that's, that's, uh, that's certainly helpful. Um, I think yeah. that, the, you know, this gives us a, another opportunity to expand, uh, you know, our understanding of other people in our communities and I think that's a big piece of it. You know, I, mm. you know, it, it's, it's a, a path that I haven't walked myself, but would certainly be really interested in, in, in reading and, and getting to know it and, and sort of maybe having a bit of a glimpse on, on, on these other lives. Um, any, any. And sometimes it's, it's not others. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's ourselves understanding ourselves. Cause sometimes when I say I'm disabled, I have multiple disabilities. People are like, Oh, you're disabled. Actually, I'm disabled too. I've never really thought about myself as disabled, but yeah, I have multiple disabilities too. Or, um, yeah, actually the different intersections of my gender identities are not necessarily as simple as, as I previously thought. So sometimes when you just put these experiences out there other people are able to oh, and ourselves are, we're able to go oh actually i am that so thank you for putting uh some representation there for me yeah, to identify it's incredibly with. powerful to see yourself reflected in in media including obviously books um so that's that's always important to to achieve i think for our, our whole audience uh, you know this is a great great purchase for the loved one uh, in your life um you know hopefully if you're looking for any last minute Christmas gifts, I mean, it would be really last minute. It's a very good holiday. Yeah, it's a very good holiday uh, present. And it's very, uh, it's very, you know, holiday time, winter themes, 
uh, everything. So it's a perfect holiday gift for your teen or for anyone, really. It, it, it's entertaining Excellent. for all ages. Well, I want to encourage everyone to go and check out uh, your website, which is carlyheathauthor.com. It's C-A-R-L-Y-H-E-A-T-H author.com. And- and The Reckless Kind is available at bookstores everywhere. So everywhere books are sold, especially, you know, your local independent bookstore. Um, if they aren't carrying it at the moment, you can always ask to order it and they will order it for you. That way you can support small businesses. But if you are a, a tool of the corporate empire, you can also buy it at Amazon. And <laughs> if you want to give your money to Bezos instead of the locals, uh, you can always do that. All right. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming and chat with us. I know we didn't get to touch on uh, queer historical research, another topic I know you're passionate about, but maybe we can touch base yeah. um, on another occasion. Absolutely. Another well, thank time. you so much again. And we will be back just after this.
Nothing separates, nothing separates Nothing separates you from the love of God Nothing separates you from the love of God Nothing separates, nothing separates Nothing separates you from the love of God Nothing separates you from the love of God Nothing separates, nothing Christian musician. Very exciting to give this another spin on our show. And uh, speaking of uh, giving a bit of a spin, we are very excited to have our next guest joining us uh, today. Uh, Tammy Dobson, thank you so much for coming in and spending time. And we've also nabbed you for the Great Big Gay Quiz of the Year yes. in a couple of weeks. So yes. uh, very excited about that. So yeah, thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks, folks. Glad to join you. Excellent. Now, um, we both, me and Sebastian, have a relation, very different relationships with you, Tammy. Yes, and you uh, still like me. And we do, yes. Uh, after all this, uh, the friendship has survived. And the thing that jumps out at me, just uh, in terms of disclosure, we bought a house, which is, you know, real estate is going to be the topic of conversation a little later today. Mm -hmm. And when trying to figure out what real estate agent to use, for me, it was a no-brainer. Because with a major purchase, mm. I feel like you need someone you can trust. Mm. And someone you can trust will be the advocate for you, will um, you know, tell you how it is. And there is nothing that comes to the top of the list like a no-nonsense lesbian. Like mm. there is <laughs> there is something about that that just like they will cut right through the yeah, chaff. Yeah. Now Sebastian, you know Tammy in a in a different field almost oh yes yes uh, i i sat on the uh the uh, board of directors for capital pride when tammy was the chair and the vast difference between when people were in the room and people were not in the room of uh, the, the 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 deep and serious professionalism when you were on the clock and then after everybody else went home the honesty came out um but it was it was it was never like biting or cruel. It was just like we can fix this. It was yeah. always optimistic yeah. and like I know we can fix this. And there's there's times you're like Tammy, not yeah. that way. <laughs> <laughs> I know I don't give up easily. That's for sure. Uh, yeah, futility wasn't a word that I had in mind uh, when it came to that. But thanks. Yeah, I I enjoyed it. No mm. regrets. No regrets. Capital Pride was a fantastic experience. 
Excellent. I would agree, no regrets, but I'm on the fence about whether or not I enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, so enjoy might be a strong word. <laughs> but at the end of the day, when I reflect uh, about all the gains of having formed a new organization yeah. and then chaired it for three years and saw it go from destitute to actually fairly well off mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and strong and viable, um, was worth it. But mm. boy, did I learn a lot. Mm. Absolutely. There's nothing quite like the crucible of uh, pride leadership. It, uh, it was a uh, skin thickening experience, that's for sure. Which, yeah, lends to my other profession too. So uh, you have to have pretty thick skin in sales. It was interesting you mentioned Jay Kunstra before we started recording because I remember walking down Bank Street with Jay Kunstra, who's a long time HIV advocate. Yes. Mm. And uh, I was talking about potentially joining the Capital Pride Board, and he said, <laughs> I've never been warned off something to the same degree <laughs> as, as joining. He's like, you know, it's almost like jury duty. Every yeah. qualified gay person has to go in and give their, you know, two year service. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, but he's like, yeah, they will chew you up and it will spit you out. And it's done that for decades, the organization. Yeah. So. Mm. I'd like to think it's a mildly different animal right now. We won't get into that, but uh, in great detail. But it's it was definitely when it was reformed in 2015 was a different set up it was a much different structure mm. and i think that's somewhat led to you know it's three years of different performance mm. um i don't really want to get on with the details yeah. but we structured it differently and we fortified it yeah so that it wasn't going to collapse every few years under some sort of financial mess mm-hmm. and no disrespect to the folks in the past i just don't think they had the tools it had been you know? a roller coaster for yeah. decades well it, yeah. more than that like it started off a volunteer organization and then yeah. When you transition to accepting government funding, yes. usually just municipal, but still it's yeah. government funding, there's a certain degree of structure and oversight that yeah. you need that you don't need when you're a volunteer organization. Yeah. And that transition can be tough. Yeah. That's the nice, polite, political way of putting yeah. it. Yeah, no, mean, that's true. That's, that's true. It was, a, it was a, essentially a mid-sized nonprofit run like a small grassroots yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. hobby uh, activity. And it's that's not... The, the, it doesn't match. Well, our our first year budget was over a quarter million dollars. Mm-hmm. That's not that's not jump change. No. Uh, and and the year before that, when it went into bankruptcy, there, they I mean they lost one hundred eight thousand, uh, or I should say they came up short one hundred eight thousand, and and their budget was more than that. Mm-hmm. So when you think about those numbers and that they didn't, or they had a challenge in acquiring the talent needed to manage that, and as you said. It was, uh, it, uh, people were scared to join the organization because you would give your time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, I was very invested in the 2014 effort. I sponsored it uh, as a realtor. Mm-hmm. I wanted to see what it, it, what was going on. And I remember thinking these poor people, there's like eight of them and they're all wearing three hats, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of obligations. Uh, there was no compensation for their efforts whatsoever, except the, you know, the desire to serve the pride platform. Mm-hmm. And uh, and at the end of every year, they got thrown under the bus and tarred and feathered by the community mm. who who weren't satisfied with the efforts of these eight people to bring together 75 to 100,000 people into a space for a pride parade. It simply had begun to crumble under the growth of pride itself as mm. a movement. And by the time I got there, I remember having fierce admiration for the people who were on the board and managing but also being terrified for them 
because, I mean, we all know how the collapse eventually happened, and that was because of the lack of oversight on the financial end of things and the commitments that were being made. And I was on that previous board. I, I got know. out four months yeah. early. Yeah. And in my experience, it wasn't necessarily a lack of oversight, but more almost willful ignorance. <laughs> okay. in the, in that can be debated, but I understand what yeah. you're saying. Yeah, It, it wasn't uh, accidental that it was mismanaged. Yeah. And, and that's maybe I'm still holding a grudge all these years on. Um, but uh, it was a mess. Well, the, the lack of, so the, when I say lack of oversight, it allowed, that lack of oversight, yeah. or the, it's, it's non-existence, if you will, uh, was what allowed for this willful, mm. you know. Yeah, uh, massive Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there I mean, you go. The two of us try to be very compassionate when we talk about Toronto Pride, which has been a bigger mm. roller coaster over the past yeah. 10 years. And that's something a, that that's comes up again and again is that we don't necessarily think they're, we don't necessarily think that they're bad people. There's a few that were like, we, we believe them to be good people with good yeah. intentions. Yeah. The issue is that they're the wrong people. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's unfortunate that there are some people who are incompetent. Or that they are competent, judge. but they're not in a position that is their competence. I do, however, want to pivot. <laughs> yes. to the, uh... I, I'm only going to have one more thought. I think that to think that you can run a private organization without a business foundation mm. uh, or the foundation of business um, is short-sighted. Yeah. And a lot of people, of course, railed against the business component that I brought to the table. I suggested that this had to be there. We had to have qualified individuals. You had to have people who were willing to run the business of pride, but also to be able to work collaboratively with the people who are who are moving the human rights component of it mm -hmm. forward. But I find it very hard for those folks who are so passionate, and we need them so much, our warriors, if mm -hmm. you will, uh, to have a meeting of the minds with the business side of running mm -hmm. an organization. And let's face it, unless you're m bringing in and managing the money that will fund this activism, you're going to fail. And there's bigger organizations and bigger human rights organizations that have managed this, mm -hmm. but it's never going to be easy coexistence. Yeah. And, but if you can manage it, great. And up until then, I don't think that coexistence was there. And we made it happen. I only joined because you said you were going to try to run it like that. Yes, mm -hmm. well, and it, it works if, and if it still seems I to be. I would have walked away right <laughs> at the start because it's terrifying enough as it is already. Yeah, no, I think, I, I think what I did is I told everyone that I promised them actually that if they came to the board of directors uh under my guidance mm. um that i would not see them uh at an annual general meeting at the end of the year in front of the public being tarred and feathered um and i promised them that because that's why everyone was terrified to join because they were like i'm going to do all this hard work and people are just going to stand there and criticize me and 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 be unkind to me in a public agm Mm. And that's why we every year we're losing more and more talent because no one wanted to, you said it the fiery crucible right there yeah. right there that's what it was, and I promised everyone who joined my organization at the time or at least the 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 impetus of what eventually become Pride, uh, our current one, is that they wouldn't have to endure that. No. We have certainly lit a fire in the <laughs> yeah, Pride yeah. organizations. As, uh, <laughs> no pressure, <laughs> everyone. Um, and, but I think that it's important that people give, be given the space yeah. to lead and innovate. Yeah. However, when it's in the community good, in the public good, there's accountability that comes yeah. with that. Mm. And I think you managed that really well in your time as the chair and... Um, I'm going to move on. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, how do you jump? Yeah, okay, good for you. Nice work. Nice. So, Way to bridge it. <laughs> I mentioned earlier that um, 
for me, when we were looking at buying a house in the mm. middle of one of the hottest, frothiest markets that have ever, yeah. ex, you know, existed. And it's gotten more intense. Oh, yeah. 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 It's yeah. nuclear now. Yeah. Yeah. It's I think I distinctly remember you telling me that the housing prices in Ottawa have not dropped since the Second World War. Uh, they've done actually two dips since the Second World War where they softened. So there's always been sort of an upward trajectory since that time, usually about 1% to 2% minimum in Ottawa because Ottawa is a very resilient market because mm-hmm. we have that big old government up there. But a third you know, of all employees. Yeah, it, so we're not, we're, we, we don't feel things the same way as the rest of the country does because of our sort of built-in workforce and the resilience of that. Um, but... Yeah, twice since World War II, where we saw prices uh, actually decline, as opposed decline, to soften. Not yeah. yeah, there's a difference, right? So people sometimes when they don't see like increase in value, they think there's a decline. It's like no, it just hasn't gone up. There's a difference between not going up and dipping in price. Mm-hmm. So you know, we had five years of buyer market here in Ottawa, where you can, I mean, there was so much inventory, and the golden goose egg was a buyer. Mm-hmm. So we were desperately searching for qualified buyers. But we were being decimated, um, our public service that is, was being decimated by a conservative government that said they were going to decimate the public service and they did a fantastic yeah. job with that. Was that the same time as Nortel? Uh, no, Nortel was before that. Okay. So Nortel had happened though by then. Okay. But the, uh, the uh, Har- uh, sorry, Harris, oh my God, Harper. Harper said he was going to change the face of public service and he did. And what he did is he laid off a lot of folks, put them on one-year contracts, uh, with no benefits, mm. uh, and it's very hard to get financing from a bank when you can only get a one-year contract mm. and only will get an extension of one year at a time. So suddenly we had a buyer pool that was hugely diminished in Ottawa, and suddenly it's like, okay, who can buy? So we had all these properties coming to market, no one to buy it, so it was awesome for buyers. And then in 2018, from beginning to end of 2018, it all changed. Mm. Uh, and that trend that everyone is talking about right now, which is a short housing supply, it's been going on for a long time. This mm. didn't happen suddenly. This has been yeah, going on yeah, forever. Yeah. There, you know, In Toronto, fantastic example. There's never going to be enough inventory there for the population base that's there. Mm. So you'll always see an escalation in prices. Uh, maybe not as mar- much in the condo market, but as long as we have shortage of housing supply, folks, hear me now, real estate agents do not control this. <laughs> uh, and furthermore, governments simply issuing permits for builders to build faster more often is not going to bring you affordable housing. Yeah. That's not the way it works. So unless government... One of the big challenges that I've seen is that most governments that guarantee affordable housing don't also define what they mean by oh, affordable Oh, no, no. They say affordable housing like, oh, Someone we're going to... Th- yeah. yeah, yeah. We're going to tell the builders yeah. to give you a deal. Yeah, because, yeah. you know, that's what the builders like, are all about. <laughs> in Toronto, I noticed that some of the affordable, quote-unquote, housing are condos that do not have a pool in the building. <laughs> I love that. So they're a one bedroom for three hundred fifty thousand instead of for four hundred fifty thousand because there's a gym on the first floor. Yeah, I would double all those numbers in that conversation. Well, I yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like we only respond to what's happening, and the lack of supply of housing is simply going to continue to be a problem, and no one is going to address it quickly because the people who are benefiting from that lack of supply have a lot of say with our politicians. 
Well, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, you say that, but most politicians make their money off of it. Uh, real estate uh, that, investments. So, well, uh, yes, but that's exactly it, with, though. Uh, with an example here, <laughs> do you remember the, the story of Laval, just outside of Montreal, where I think it was the mayor and half of council were arrested for, <laughs> yeah. for Shocking. fraud and <laughs> <They're>... corruption <laughs> yeah. because the construction industry in yeah, Laval yeah. Yeah. had yeah, yeah. them in their back pocket. Yeah. 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 So one of the questions <laughs> I had for you is how important is... Being able to trust your realtor, especially as somebody who's, who's maybe queer identified, yeah. and trusting in your knowledge of a neighborhood, the mm. makeup of the neighborhood. Mm. You know, if I'm a, you know, a gay person moving into an area, I'd, I'd like to know that this is an area where I'm not going to get stared down or mm. it's going to be hostile. So how much of that consideration have you had when queer folks in particular are looking at buying a house? I mean, I, do, I mean, you have to have simply an understanding of a good neighborhood when it comes to, is this a neighborhood that's safe, period. Safe for queer folks or just safe in general? Mm-hmm. That's always going to be a thing. That, and that's something everyone relies on every realtor to tell them. Um, having an understanding, and there's lots of ways. A realtor doesn't have to live in that specific neighborhood to, to understand it. Uh, you don't even have to live in that part of the city. Uh, but is simply looking at crime stats, simply looking around to see what's going on. Look at the turnover in housing. Mm-hmm. As far as protecting folks um, who are maybe more um, vulnerable, okay, say like us queer folk, mm-hmm. um, you know, I would say most urban centers in Canada are fairly safe. Um, so it's a rare day that I will ever say, oh, you can't move into that neighborhood because, you know, they're not going to like the gays. Um, it's more that people will ask me where are people Mm -hmm. focusing if they're queer on purchasing. So not queer on purchasing, but if they're queer and they're purchasing. Mm -hmm. So I think that has become less of a conversation though now than Mm -hmm. it would have in a time where we had more options on where to buy. The challenge now is that the downtown core economically speaking, is basically becoming out of reach Mm. for a lot of folks. The most recent conversation I've heard that is even mildly touched uh, with, you know, the queer conversation is one of the artistic communities and where they gather. And of course, in the artistic community, we're going to find a lot of queer expression. But a lot of queer communities are simply not able to afford uh, to live in certain areas anymore. Um, they're they're not able to get studio space in certain mm-hmm. areas anymore because they're simply becoming out of reach. And this conversation applies more to Toronto right now than to Ottawa. Ottawa is not, it's on a similar trajectory as, as Toronto was, say, maybe three decades ago. We are slated for phenomenal growth. We're talking in the next quarter century, another half million people yeah. are going to move into the Ottawa-Gatineau region. That's a, a monstrous amount of growth. Um, and you know, if, if you looked at that number, it was, would be similar to what Toronto was doing 20 or 30 years ago Mm -hmm. in terms of its, you know, trajectory and growth as well. Um, but in Toronto, they're now taking areas that have benefited from the artistic community, the artistic community's expression or presence, um, and they're converting them into residential spaces, i.e. the distillery district. Mm -hmm. Uh, and if you haven't read about that one, it's a... It's a district that has been full of artist spaces um, and uh, shops where they sell goods um, and um, they benefit from, you know, live music uh, performances and otherwise. 
and they're now about to slap a big condo up in the middle of it and they're booting artists out who did know to some extent like over like in the next 365 days they're going to have to leave the space mm-hmm. but they've been that, that that notice has been shortened and they're going to be booted out even sooner what role do you think being out and queer plays in your time as a real estate agent I remember before we started recording, yeah. you know, being out has impacted <laughs> you in, in really, really, ways. Out, yes. <laughs> yeah. So when I was um, uh, when I decided to uh, form the new Capital Pride in Ottawa, and that was in the shadow of the bankruptcy of the former organization, um, I had made a choice that I would act as chair and I would also be spokesperson, and that it would be one spokesperson, one message throughout the organization, and doing something like that. Uh, in the in so much controversy, will definitely um, it doesn't help with branding and of course realtors we you know our name is our brand. I think and, I have three of your face on my fridge. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You got some. I got my notepads in your fridge. But here's the thing: you, when you throw yourself out there, and this can be applied to anywhere. Okay, when you're going to put yourself at the front of a movement or make yourself the face of something that's not necessarily popular mm. all the way around or controversial you're going to take a hit. And when those three years that I was in Pride uh, or running uh, as, you know, the, the Pride organization as chair and spokesperson, the final year, which was in 2017, uh, which was always going to be my final year, that was never news. I said three years and it was three years, mm-hmm. uh, was the year that we had to address the, uh, the matter of police at Pride mm-hmm. and their presence and their presentation. And that, uh, of course, we all know how inflammatory that was uh, in any community and in any conversation, any discourse anywhere. And uh, I had people in our community, our queer community, say that they would never do business with me uh, because we had, um, our organization had made a decision to request that police set their uniforms aside. And of course, they these folks don't know how organizations are structured. They don't realize the chair's spokesperson and heads up meetings, but doesn't necessarily have a vote unless it's a tiebreaker. Mm-hmm. But they kept on you like it was me. It was always me, me, me. And so when your name is in the newspaper regularly alongside this, you know, like incredibly inflamed conversation, it doesn't work well. But what was most surprising was that our own community were the ones that were saying, I'm not going to do business with you. You'll never get any of my business. You know, I'm completely against what you're doing. And so I, you know, for sure there was business that I did not get um, because I uh, was in this position in the queer community. Um, can I say that being a queer realtor garnered me more business with the queer folks? Not necessarily. Honestly, I think that my relationships with people, Luke, you and I had an experience through Pride. Uh, we made a connection. Mm-hmm. And it was really the connection in that experience that did it. Um, and I think that that was an important part of your decision making because there's lots of queer realtors out there, but you don't necessarily have a relationship with them. Mm-hmm. So I think however people perceive my time and my competence in that space may have compelled them to call me but i would say i wouldn't encourage a realtor (laughs) 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 to do what i did to build business i mean i really i leapt without thinking Mm -hmm. because it needed that in the moment Mm -hmm. and having volunteered for pride in toronto for many years just as a volunteer nothing significant um you know and just being queer and believing in the movement I did it, and I did it without thinking. But did it yeah. hurt me? Probably, yeah. Everyone, everyone here has done their pride duty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. 
we've run out of time, Ooh. though. I'm sorry, Seb, but look, uh, you want, you want to oh no, I was just gonna time. say there's one time where you were busy, so I went with your partner on a call, uh-huh. and we looked at a house, and yeah. you said. Da, da, da. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And then I said, okay, but what do you really think? And you're like, yeah, don't get this one. So yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's a good realtor. No, you know what? I would never let anyone make anything less than a solid decision. But yeah. as for queerness and making a call with respect to my client, I'm always going to look at everyone's criteria. And if mm-hmm. that part of that means being safe in a community, yeah, yeah, it's going to factor into it for sure. Well, your um, assessment was, this is a fine and good house, but not for you. Yeah, which, which is a good, a mm-hmm. very good yeah. assessment. Yeah. Well, I think being able to trust your realtor is mm. uh, very important, and we certainly were able to do that. We have run out of time on today's show. I want to thank Tammy so much for joining us. We will be playing out with "Child of the Government" by the incredible Indigenous artist uh, Johnny Wolf. I've been Vic Smith, and I'm Sebastian. Hi, and I'm Tammy. <laughs> and thank you for listening.
What doesn't kill you makes you a monster.